You do your regular screening process. You have to have a very good hiring process in place. What I also find is we do cultural interviews and often you should call them cultural ad interviews. You're not going to fit somebody into your culture. Like you're trying to add more to your culture by bringing these different people from different backgrounds, let's say. But it's not just the hiring Cameron. I think where we are forgetting that it's super important to do is to train ourselves to read how does someone from a different culture behave. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Welcome, listeners, to another exciting episode of the Second in Command podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with a true visionary in the tech world. Join us as we dive into the world of press books with none other than Bashak Boyuk Selen, the incredible COO behind this open sourced SaaS platform. Bashak's passion for innovation and forward thinking leadership is evident in everything she does, from her unorthodox hiring practices to her office rent offsets for company retreats. She's a global citizen with business experience spanning Turkey, Canada, and Mexico, and she's here to share her journey and insights with us. With a focus on employee well-being, Pressbooks has implemented a company-wide four-day, eight-hour workweek, a revolutionary concept in the tech industry, and Bashik knows that productivity gains can actually come from an employee retention rather than just simply working longer hours. But it's not all about work for Bashik. She's also a pro at navigating cultural differences from hiring offshore talent as cultural additions to managing the drinking culture in Korean companies. And she's got some inspiring insights to share about her daily stoicism practice and how it helped her recover from corporate burnout. So sit back and relax and get be ready to be inspired by Bashak Boyaselin, the innovative and trailblazing COO of Pressbooks. So Bashak, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Hi, Cameron. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you again. And um, you're obviously you're a CEO Alliance member, which is why I just said to see you again as well. But why don't we just dive right into what Pressbooks is? You're the COO of a really cool organization. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Pressbooks so we know where we can go. I've already got a bunch of questions I know I'm going to ask you too. Right. Great. So Pressbooks is a SaaS platform. We're actually open source. We're an open source SaaS platform where uh, you can come in and publish your book. Originally, we started as a company that, you know, if you have a book that you want to publish by yourself without the involvement of a, of a traditional publisher, you could come in, pay us a fee and publish your book and, and you know, put it on Amazon or wherever you like. But we actually shifted quite a bit, especially in the last five years, and we now almost primarily serve educational institutions. So uh, so educators will come to us, they will create their content, they will adapt the content that we have, they will share the content that they have, they have seen, and it allows them to share these textbooks with students so that textbooks, uh, so that students don't have to necessarily pay, you know, hundreds, hundreds of dollars per textbook. So we're quite popular in, in especially the open educational resources land where the idea is that you give the, the textbook to the student, but it's not only that we connect to learning management systems, we have interactive quizzes that you can build. So it really allows the educator to build their own books, use the books that we have to, to allow the students to understand, do I really understand the context? 
the content so they can go and do their quizzes. As a professor, you can say, I don't want to grade a quiz, send me the results automatically. We will connect your learning management system and we will say, here are the quizzes that your student has done. And the student even has a choice to send the best results if they've done the test multiple times. So we're a mission-driven organization, to say the least. I love that. Who, who pays? How do you make your revenue? Uh, it's the universities that pay us. Uh, we don't charge the student and we have a sliding scale um, pricing system where if you're a small university with little funds, uh, we say, you know, you can, you can start by $5,000 and you can go all the way up to $100,000 or more, depending on how many students you have, how many books you want to create, how many people are going to use the system. So, you know, we talk about that when you come to us and we see what your needs are and then we'll give you a pricing. I would think that prior to, you know, two years ago, building out an LMS and building out quizzes and building out testing and building out would have been expensive. I have a feeling like you're probably starting to leverage AI. Um, AI, we haven't even touched yet, but now is such a big topic because it's not to use AI, but actually there's a big fear in the educational uh, space where professors are thinking, how do I know if this essay was written by an AI? How do I know this test was, especially if you're doing like online quizzes and stuff, there's a lot against that. Not to say we don't want to leverage it, but I think there's also the other point where there's this genuine fear. You know, you're, you're this professor, you get just given homework and said, do this essay. Now, how do you know if that essay is actually genuinely written by the student? So there are ways now of thinking, how do we find ways to encourage authentic learning and authentic experiences? So the way we have been connecting to learning management systems and doing all these quizzes you know, there, there are already systems in place that we do leverage, that we do use, and then we build our own. But I think AI is now becoming such a hot topic. I mean, it's been around for a while, but with ChatGPT coming on, now it's like alarms for everyone everywhere, right? So, so now we're hearing this, you know, professors have this fear that, you know, how do we know how much of this is genuine learning and how do we make sure that students use it to their leverage to actually learn? And, and master their, their, their knowledge as opposed to just cheating the system. Well, and, or as my son is saying right now, is it cheating the system when this is a tool we're going to be using for the next 50 years? Maybe I'm learning how to use a system that's going to become necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And he's kind of got a point. Like, um, it's kind of like me telling my kids they have to learn how to type. And the, my kid's like, I've, I've been typing my whole life. Like, I had to go to typing class, but my my kid just started typing. I'm like, how did you learn? He goes, I don't know. The keys are right in front of me. I'm like, what? so you said something that intrigued me and that you said you're an open sourced SaaS company. What's that? I mean, I, I know what it means. But... Yeah. So open source means that the code that we have, the systems that we have are available. You can go grab our infrastructure, our, our coding system from GitHub. You can use it. Let's say you're a university, you have your own infrastructure, you have your own uh, DevOps team, and they want to take Pressbooks as a product and they want to implement it in their campus, they can do so completely for free. We don't charge them. As a matter of fact, we uh, we support them um, because we want open source also means you have all these contributors who can come in and contribute to your code and they can make the product better. That said, we also have to make a living because we're a team. We want to be able to, you know, like pay our people. We will generate revenue. So that's where um, the paying customer comes in for multiple reasons. A, they don't want to go through the hassle of, you know, keeping the, uh, the infrastructure secure. They don't want to pay for, uh, they don't want to hire this person who's going to maintain it. They just come to us and say, 
I will buy your system. I know you're hosting it. You're in charge of keeping it secure. And then there's some features that we can say, we're just going to do this for people who are paying us the extra fee as like an additional uh, add-on. So, um, so that's where the revenue numbers come in. That's why people come to us. We've actually even had uh, open source users who've been using Pressbooks and they've been hosting it themselves for years. And they said, hey, we just had enough to just do it for us. We'll come pay you. And we're like, gladly. Interesting. All right. You've got a fascinating kind of backstory. Let's go into some of your backstory before you got to be the COO. So yeah. you were originally from Turkey. We're, you're now sitting in Mexico, but you've been living in Montreal, Canada, where my youngest son is going to school. Walk us through that journey. Right. So I'm originally from Turkey and uh, my, my first job was at a bank. And then I started working for LG Electronics. Um, it was a great learning experience, but I I felt like I didn't want to be in Turkey. Um, I just wanted I just wanted to be somewhere else. And I don't think it's a unique experience. There are many people. That's why there's so many immigrants. They want a better life. But I also happen to you know, not be happy at the job where I had to like wear a suit and, and, you know, go into the office and, and fit in this like kind of persona that I had to fit into. And I was like, I want something better. Um, and I ended up applying to um, uh, Vancouver Film School, actually, in, in Vancouver, because I found that they were, they were just starting this program called um, Entertainment Business Management. And I was like, oh, I want to be in films, like I not in, be in films, but I actually be in the film industry. And I said, I have background in finance. Maybe I can be a line producer where I can, you know, do budgets for films and stuff. So that dream started, moved to Vancouver, uh, studied at Vancouver Film School. And then I was like, nah, I don't want to do budgets. I want to make films. So I actually ended up making films, writing them, directing them, producing them. And I had a... a short-lived for reasons outside of my control, and I'm not going to get into it here, the short-lived uh, uh, directing career, and it was just incredible. Uh, five years of, you know, write films, produce films, um, go to festivals, you know, it was fascinating. Um, then I had to leave Turkey. So at this point, I'd come back to Turkey after studying in Vancouver, come back to Turkey, do all of that, and I said, okay, I need to get the hell out of here. and. Within that period, I had applied through the federal skilled worker program uh, to, to become a, an immigrant, a permanent resident in Canada. That took a long time because it always does. It, takes, it costs you a lot of money. It takes a long time. And I was like, okay, I'm going to move to Canada. And I ended up visiting Montreal and I said, no, 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 I'm not living in Vancouver. This is the place I want to be. Found like Montreal was the melting pot of like Europe and North, North America. And the problem was I spoke zero French. So I was like, okay, go back to school, study French, learn French. Okay, now I'm ready to work. And I started applying for jobs. And I was like, whoa, nobody's hiring me. Why? Like, I have a great, great resume. I'm a well-traveled, well-spoken person. I'm fluent in English, bilingual. There's a lot that I can bring to the table and yet six months and no one will call me for an interview. I now understand as someone who does hiring now, I understand why. There's always the fear that someone from another country, someone from another culture is not going to fit well with your culture. They're not going to understand the intricacies of some stuff. There will be all sorts of like Maybe there might be misunderstandings, but there's so many ways to get around that and bringing different people will only enrich your culture. Yeah. So now Pressbooks, we go out of our way to bring these immigrants in 
uh, we actually pay for their lawyers. We pay for their uh, visa applications. We do it for them so we can bring this talent that will only make us a better company. So I flipped it around and it's going well. And is the company, is the company based in Canada? Yes, we're, our head office is in Montreal. I mean, now it's, we, we've shut down our offices and we can talk about that. But yes, we're Montreal-based. Okay. And you're bringing skilled people in from other countries yes. into Canada. What's, and what's the process? You, you mentioned it to me off, offline. I was intrigued. You said it was called something like VanHack. Yes. Yeah, so we started working with a company called VanHack Technologies. They're basically a typical recruiting company with an additional, let us hire these people for you and help you bring them into Canada. So when you pay VanHack, when you pay the typical 15, 20% recruiting uh, percentage that you would normally pay any other recruiter, they have cut their margins enough that they actually, that fee that you pay to them goes to their lawyers and their immigrant consultants where they do the application for you that this person that you wanna hire from Argentina, from Brazil, from Mexico, whatever that might be from Dubai, they bring them, they, 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 apply on behalf of you or you do it with them in a way and you get into an agreement with federal government of canada and then depending on what your province is we have one with quebec where we say we're going to bring these three people because we can't find this talent in montreal you know uh, full stack developers uh devops engineers whatever that might be and in exchange i say the next three hires or four hires that i'm going to make are going to be from uh, like they're going to be local permanent residents or citizens so you say i'm giving back to the society to the canadian taxpayers by creating more jobs for them so i know the next sales marketing uh customer support people that we're hiring we will do it from canada you also go into a negotiation with uh, with the government and say uh, in exchange for bringing these people we're going to create knowledge transfer programs you brought this person because they they have they hold this particular knowledge, let's say on uh, you know whatever technical field that they work in, and they will come and train the rest of your team. So you now hold this knowledge, and when that Canadian folk that you have hired as a as a junior PHP developer goes elsewhere, they've now been trained. So there's a lot of uh, the and this is not so well known. Like this is I'm fascinated that this is not a program that we're all not not doing. Yeah, this is pretty intriguing stuff. And, and I love that your your approach to it came from something that you felt and saw and then you kind of reached out and, and found a different solution for it. It also clearly helps your organization. But can you walk me through one other thing? If we're a company based in Canada, based in the US, based wherever, and we have that weird bias that we would like to overcome, which is that bias against hiring a foreigner, how do we interview and know that they are going to be a good culture fit or they are going to have the right skill set like you know like i get so tired of, of chatting with these taxi drivers who are who have an engineering degree or they're a taxi yeah. driver they're a doctor back in their foreign country man what the heck are you doing driving a taxi so how do we how do we screen them and know that they are going to be a great fit what do we do to give ourselves the comfort that you know what these are diamonds in the rough we're crazy not to be hiring them. exactly well so you do your regular uh, screening process. You have to have a very good hiring process in place. What I also find is we do cultural interviews and often you should call them cultural ad interviews. You're not going to fit somebody into your culture. Like you're trying to add more to your culture by bringing these different people from different backgrounds, let's say. But it's not just the hiring Cameron. I think where we are forgetting that is super important to do is to train ourselves to read how does someone from a different culture behave? 
one of the reading assignments and one of the training assignments that, I, that we have in our onboarding process is you have to go through a training that we provide, we actually pay for it, where you learn how people from different cultures behave. Now, you can't generalize a culture and say people from Japan behave this way, people from Brazil behave this way. But there's so many um, traits there that you start catching on that if you train your people in understanding those uh, clues when you when you work with someone from a different culture and start understanding that it is a cultural difference, you start embracing that and you start using that to leverage. If you, let's say in this, there's a book that I always recommend that we read, uh, The Cultural Map by, um, I can't remember her name now, Myers, someone Myers. Um, we always say, read this book and you're going to understand why this colleague from the US will end up a call in this specific way where this call from Brazil will actually not gonna ask you many questions because, you know, understanding of different hierarchies. So when you train yourself and your entire team that now becomes an incredible source of power where you can leverage all these different kind of these different backgrounds, a different understanding of company culture, and it only enriches you. It's not just about hiring, oh, somebody's very skilled. It's not just about that. It's so much more than that. I love that you're saying they're cultural ads. They're not cultural differences. They're cultural ads, which is really, really intriguing. Yeah. All right. And by the way, one of my closest friends ever is the former COO for Vancouver Film School. Oh, wow. Um, so when was your last year at Vancouver Film School? Uh, 2009, I graduated from there. Oh, too, too early. Christopher Bennett was his name, but I think Christopher might have come in around 2000 and. 12 and then was there in oh yeah 2020 it's a fascinating school it really is that's a great school i was really blown away i went for a tour of it and i was just like fuck it. it's huge it's like ginormous man it's the real deal um my son is obsessed with the film industry my my 22 year old who's in vancouver is working in film and trying to get more and more gigs in film and loves the industry like you do so hey it's cameron did you hear? That's right, I wrote another book. But this book isn't just another book for me, it's actually for you, the visionary CEO that is looking to grow and scale their business. This book is called The Second in Command, Unleash the Power of Your COO. As a founder and CEO, you're used to making all the decisions, but the business you have isn't the one you envision. Heck, we've all been there. And the thing is, you know what you need. You need a COO, someone who can help you build the company you don't know how to build on your own. The Second in Command is your go-to guidebook when you're ready to scale up. I go through all the details in every aspect of the process, from knowing when you need to hire a COO, through identifying and hiring the right candidate, and successfully onboarding and working with them, and so much more. Go to CameronHerald.com forward slash new book to get your copy today. The Second in Command reveals the benefits COOs bring to companies and explores the many ways a COO mastermind or a COO forum can help grow the COO skills. You'll meet the types of COOs and understand the role each type plays, discover how to bring on a COO into your company with the least disruption, and avoid common problems before they arrive. Once again, it's CameronHerald.com forward slash new book to grab your copy today. There's no need to go it alone. We're in this together. Now back to the show. All right. Talk to me now about going offshore, like, or you're moving now from Canada post COVID or during COVID, you're like, fuck this, sitting in an office. Your company went through a really interesting transition with getting rid of the office yeah. and going offshore. Can you walk us through that? 
Yeah, so before the pandemic, we still had a couple of people who were working from, uh, you know, from the States or from elsewhere, like contractors or, or people who were full-time employees that chose to live there. But we always had this, like whenever somebody was going to, was gonna, whenever we were going to hire someone, we would say, okay, the product manager who lives in the U.S. should come and we should do an in-office onboarding, right? And the pandemic hit and we're like, what are we going to do? Like not hire for for until whenever, like we you just don't know, you have to adapt, adapt fast. And we realized that working remotely actually was a huge addition to our productivity, to our understanding of how do we communicate with each other when we're not in the same room. I think it improved our communication style. It definitely helped. First, like everybody, we started doing meetings for everything. And, and you know, because you don't have the water cooler conversation, you don't have the regular, let's work for coffee and sort this shit out. Now has to be a meeting where you have to set it up. You have to set up an agenda, but you're, the meeting suck book is great. Thank you for that. And eventually we realized, you know, do we give up the office? Let's maybe it's about time. So we pulled a survey and we said, you know, do you want us to give up the office? And people were screaming, no, I don't want to stay at home with my children, with my dog. It's so distracting. Please don't give up the office. I'm going to be there as soon as the government allows me to do so. Two years later, we pulled the same survey. Only person that said, yes, I would go to the office was me. And, and now I'm in Mexico. I'm so glad I was the only person that said so. And we realized why take that money that we pay in rent Put it in a retreat. Pressbooks is going to a retreat in Dominican Republic in three weeks, and we're going to shape our next year's OKRs, the objectives and key results that we use, much like the EOS system. We're going to get together in person in an exciting location. You know, uh, we're going to spend three, four days working together, and then a couple of days we're going to be swimming at the beach and what have you. So I think it was so interesting to see. I thought everybody wanted us to give up the office in the, in the beginning and people were like, no, I have to go. I don't want to be at home with my, with my husband and my child turned into no man, I'm not going ever. So I'm glad that we consulted the employees on that because I thought I, like, I think I would have kept the office honestly. And then I wouldn't be here in Mexico. So that's very sad. That is bonus time. So one of the things that we do at the COO Alliance is we, we tell all of our members that we guarantee they get a 10 X return. If they come to all the events, participate actively, they're going to get at least 10 times the cost of membership. They're going to get that in return. And, and I say, I, I want them to really do that every month. Like I actually want like a 10X times 12X. Like I want a big, big return. But just understanding that you can take what you used to pay in rent and use that money as an offset for, for an all company retreat, or even a couple of great quarterly or, or annual retreats for the employees that makes so much sense because now it's not an expense. It's an offset that you used to have the expense anyways. Um, I think that's brilliant. Super good idea. You also do something pretty unique that you'd mentioned earlier about the four-day work week. Can you walk us through how it's going? It's going great. Um, so I actually just did a second uh, survey to ask people how it's going. And I have seen so far about 70% of the people believe that we've seen an increase in productivity. Now, a lot of people think if you're working 32 hours, you have X amount of work to finish and you're now going to try and do it at 32 hours. There's only so many meetings you can remove and so much better performance you can take out of people. There's no way you're going to be able to squeeze that eight extra hours in there. And therefore, you're not going to be as productive. What people are missing about this is that productivity is not here's the input, here's the output. We have delivered X number of hours of work is not productivity. Productivity should be looked at as a whole, where if you get to have 
if you get to keep your people because they're healthier, they rest better, they like the idea of having a three-day weekend, what will happen is your, your retention of your employees are going to go up. You're not going to lose people. And all those people who have the institutional knowledge, who have built in the code, built in the infrastructure, sold all of those accounts are becoming more and more and more senior. So you're enriching your, your, your people. That's, that's one thing. That's another bonus time. Exactly. Keeping exactly. Employee retention can be enough productivity in and of itself. Yes, because even if you do replace those people fairly quickly, it takes six months for someone to get started working with you into, into becoming to, to the peak of their productivity. You've now lost six months. Like, I don't know how it's not so clear to all of us that it's not about, oh, we sh the, the hours are now less and therefore we're not going to achieve as much. Forget about what you're achieving on a, week, a weekly basis. Look at the big picture. Love it. All right. What else? You were, you were continuing and I kind of jumped in on the bonus time. Yeah, no. So uh, definitely burnout. I, I experienced burnout myself years and years ago. And it was, I, you know, I, it's such a traumatic experience for the person who's going through that, who's now questioning, why am I behaving this way? Why am I not performing well? Why am I unable to take on more work? Why am I, why do I not want to go to work? Like, it's such a I'm going to say that it's such a mind fuck, right? Like you're constantly in your head. Why am I reacting this way? And then it takes a therapist to tell you you're going through burnout. These are the symptoms. You have to stop working. Yeah. So when I was first told you're having burnout, you got to take leave one month. I said, absolutely not. I'm not leaving my job for one month because I'm worried uh, everything is going to burn, burn down. The more I resisted, the longer it took me to recover from that burnout. I was out for four months Wow! and it took me four months to get back to my, to myself. So of course, burnout doesn't happen only because you work a lot, right? There's so many other additional factors, but one of the reasons is because we're trying to achieve so much, we're trying to do so much. And we're always in this kind of romanticize the idea of overwork. We kind of proudly say I'm a workaholic and we try to sell this as a selling point in interviews, you know, the, the, the usual, what's your, I'm a perfectionist. I work too much. Like all of this is bullshit. Let's just get over that. Right. What you do when you say to people and, you know, talk the talk and then walk it as well, we're going to be a four day work week company. We really don't want you to work more than 32 hours. Oh, and you're four, are you 40, you're 40, eight hour work week. Yes. It's not compressed. 32 hours. Yeah. Well, you have to mean it and you have to show it over and over and over again because everybody thinks you're bullshitting. It's, it's normal. It's normal to think, what's the, what's the catch? What's going to happen? Am I going to lose my salary? Does it mean I won't be able to get a, a promotion? Does it mean you're going to hire somebody else? What does it mean? Like, there's so many questions because it's not normalized yet, right? But the, when you get ahead of those concerns, by actually doing a survey before you implement the four day work week, what are your concerns and then take them. And then before you implement it, work through those problems, improve your standard operating procedures, improve your processes, improve your meeting time. Look at all the things that are taking so much time for us to be able to get through on a Friday afternoon. How do I work better? And then address all of those concerns with the people and do a trial you know, we're now hiring for multiple people. And I used to hear all the time, why are you interested in Pressbooks? And I would always hear, oh, mission-driven organization. 
I like your, uh, you know, the company. I like open source. Now I hear you're a 40 worker company. We're getting incredible talent. Like there is just so many benefits to it that we're now only starting to see. And I hope it's just going to become the norm. I love it. I love the process behind it all. You've now mentioned a couple of times surveying employees, surveying employees. Is that something you do in practice? And, and what are some other examples of when you survey them and why you survey them? So it's interesting. I come from again, talking about cultural differences from where hierarchy, not only about Turkey, but I've worked for Korean companies for years, hierarchy is like super important, right? So you, even if you disagree with your manager, you don't bring it up in a way. You don't, uh, you kind of like somebody makes a decision and it trickles down from there. So when I moved to Canada, I saw that it's a different culture here and I should be able to speak up and I should be able to say, that's bullshit on, on my, to my manager when they have a shitty idea. But practicing that is not, is not, is not that easy. Uh, although I worked many, many years in, in Canada, I still felt I couldn't quite shake off the, I made the decision and I said so because I know better. Because sometimes you do. Sometimes you have the experience more than someone is early in their career, but you miss that unique person's feedback where they don't have the baggage that you're bringing about a certain decision or they have a different approach different generation different culture and my ceo he's like let's ask everyone let's ask everyone everything so we found this point where we now have a process where we say if we're making a decision these kind of decisions the c-suite makes those decisions these kind of decisions the managers of those departments are included in that decision-making process. These kind of decisions, we talk to everybody on the floor. So we now have this, like literally a chart where when we're making a decision, we sit down and say, we call them red flag decisions. Actually, he coined the term on it. It's a red flag decision if we know it's going to affect everybody and we may not know better. That's when we start surveying everyone. I love it. So sometimes it's to make a decision. Sometimes it's just to understand the issue more and to make better decisions at a team level. Absolutely. But you explain why we're serving it. We're not serving it and taking the best response. We might we might be, or we might be serving it, taking information and making a decision based on what we read too. You tossed out something kind of intriguing as well. I want to ask you about, you mentioned you've done a lot of work with these Korean companies. What like working with Korean leadership teams? What can you kind of, you know, what kind of um, insights can you give us there? It's a completely different culture. It is now definitely improving. There is, uh, especially in Korean companies, I have seen there is gender bias. Like, but I, it's not unique to Korean culture. Like, it's 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 everywhere, right? But it is more subtle in some in some companies and less so in other companies. Um, there is a fascinating drinking culture where it is embedded into the business. When I was working for LG Electronics, every Thursday, the manager of the uh, logistics team would take his team over uh, to a bar to get them to talk, learn how to talk business over drinking, teach them to drink better so that you can outdrink the Chinese and get a better pricing. Like it, there are fascinating stories. I'll tell you, um, I was in the Netherlands, went to a, um, uh, went to what I did not realize was an interview. I thought it was just that I was invited to a dinner. It was a 12 people dinner 
with different uh, budgeting specialists from LG Electronics working in different locations. I was working in Turkey at the time and there were other people from Greece, from here, from there. And I thought it was just a dinner. I had no idea why, where there were 200 attendees to this conference. I had no idea why only 12 people were there, but um, we were fed snake and we were fed a lot of booze. And what I realized at the end of this three hour dinner was that where are you going to eat the snake? Because they want to know, are you open-minded? Are you going to refuse something right off the bat? Are you going to be able to say yes to something that might be not very comfortable for you, but it is in their own culture to eat that? I was also, I was talking to, uh, to someone who was probably like VP of finance or something like that. And, and he looked at me and he said, I think I'm too drunk to go home. And I said, I'll drive you. And he gave me his car keys. That was him testing me. Did I, did I hold my liquor well? Can I drive him back home? These are all like, these are fascinating things to see, is this person right for you? You know? I'm curious, what would happen now with somebody because drinking is becoming such a, not taboo, but like so many people are migrating away from drinking. Can you navigate the Korean work culture and, and be someone who doesn't drink? Yes. I, I faked my drinking many years before that. There was a time I decided I didn't want to drink for a few years. When I had that interview, I had gone back to drinking and I was perfectly fine drinking in, in, in modest amounts. But when I, uh, when I first started working for LG Electronics in Turkey, we had a couple of managers coming from Korea and it was my job to take them out to a restaurant with my own manager. And I knew if I say I'm not drinking, it's not that I'm going to lose my job. It's not that bad, but you understand to read the subtleties, right? So I gave some tip to the waiter and I was like, keep the liquor coming, but take mine. So I didn't drink the entire night. Nobody knew. And I, you know, everybody else was, they went happily home. They were super excited to be in Turkey. Uh, they invested in the, um, in the uh, uh, factory that I was working in. Things went great. You always figure a way out. Like, you know, now this is like 20, 25 years ago, right? So now it's different. Now there is also, you know, there's political correctness. There's, you know, work culture. You can't, but understanding these are also different. I, I did an internship in a film company in Vancouver and one of the owners was Korean. And, you know, uh, he would call me at two in the morning. And for me, that was normal. But when I like mentioned this to the Canadian, uh, his Canadian co-partner, he was like, that is not okay. Like, he can't call you. I'm like, why? My Korean boss in Turkey called me at two in the morning all the time. So we're all changing and adapting, right? And, and that's why it's important to understand these different cultures, read books, do some trainings, train your own people in understanding when they react to you in a certain way, it might be a completely, it might come from their, their cultural background. They may not feel comfortable to speak up more. So then you, especially as managers, we figure out, I should ask that person's opinion in a more formulated way to tell them, I want you to speak up. I put it in their performance reviews. I know you're shy, totally okay. We're all different people. Some people talk more than others, but I wanna hear from you more. And they open up, right? All right. I want you to talk to your 22-year-old self. 22-year-old <laughs> Bashuk just getting ready to start in her career. What advice would you give the 22-year-old that you know to be true today? Practice stoicism, man. Practice stoicism. I think had I, and I, I try to practice it every day now, but I think the younger, the earlier you start to understand, to deal with your emotions, you become 
a better person, you become a better future manager, you become a better colleague. That's one thing. Second, oh dear God, if I could go back 20 years ago, 25 years ago and say, just put on a regiment of like working out every morning, 10 minutes. It's so easy to implement that earlier in your life and it pays off. You know, your body, as we get old, we don't realize we're getting old and implementing that workout routine in your forties is so much harder. So invest in myself is what I would say, because career is going to come, right? Career, career follows, but you need to invest in your, in your emotional state and learn how to deal with problems head on and also, you know, invest in your body because it's, it's gonna, it's gonna beat you later. That's what I'd say. It's, it's going to be <laughs> later for sure. Bashik, thank you so much for sharing. In 270 episodes, you're the first person I've heard say mention stoicism, <laughs> and that is awesome. That's great. Ryan Holiday and I go way back through a couple of masterminds, and he, he's good writing around that whole space too. Oh, yes. Thank you for sharing on the Second Command podcast. We'll see you at our monthly event next week. Thank you so much, Cameron. Take care. Bashik, bye-bye. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.